0: You may be seated. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fishing. This is the first line of Norman MacLean's semi autobiographical book, A River Runs Through It. Or if you're a Brad Pitt fan, it was uh, was made a movie in the 90s. Um, Both the book and the movie are two of my favorites. The story is about two reckless and rebellious brothers named Norman and Paul, who just happened to be the sons of the town's Presbyterian minister. And so, like I'm sure every good Presbyterian child here this morning, these boys spent most of their time studying and reciting the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So much fun, right? But uh, between study sessions, their dad would, would give them a different sort of instruction, He would take them fly fishing. On the banks of the big Blackfoot River in western Montana, these wild boys learned their father's four-count fishing rhythm as he clapped his cupped hands behind their head. You see, their father was a master fisherman, and he was teaching his sons his fishing rhythm. But he was not only a master fisherman, he was also a master Presbyterian. So he knew that his boys were by nature a complete mess. Their hearts were corrupt. Their hearts were stubborn. They were full of pride. They thought they could create their own rhythm instead of listening to their father. However, they soon found out that their rhythm didn't result in much fish. And after hours and hours of not catching anything, Norman and Paul began to grow impatient. And they grew increasingly frustrated at both their father and the fish, who weren't biting. You see, without their father's four-count rhythm, fishing brought no joy to these boys. But over time, and as a result of a lot of hard work and practice, their father's rhythm became their own. And with their father's rhythm, fishing became as natural as breathing to these boys. They no longer had to think about each individual count in the rhythm. Every count now blended together into one beautiful motion. And soon enough, these boys became master fishermen, just like their father. Fishing had captured their hearts. It was all they ever wanted to do. In our passage this morning, Luke describes our Heavenly Father's four-count rhythm for the Christian life. But we're like Norman and Paul, and our hearts are by nature a complete mess. God's rhythm is not natural to us. We're selfish, stubborn, we're full of pride, we think we know best. And so we also try to create our own rhythm instead, and as a result, we begin to grow impatient. Impatient. And we start to grow increasingly frustrated at both our Heavenly Father and our fellow humans who we are earnestly trying to help, but who just don't want to hear the Gospel. God's rhythm must become our rhythm, and if we're to become master fishermen like Jesus, we have to fish like our Father. So uh, if you would, please pull out your sermon outlines, and uh, we're going to talk about this four-count rhythm this morning. So hearing God's word is the one count. And it is the key to this entire passage. See, we're, we are to be a people with the same posture as these Israelites on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. These people were, they were craving God's word. They craved God's word with such Vigor and intensity that Jesus had to board a boat in order to create some distance so that he could teach them. They were hungry for God's word and they were desperate to be close to Jesus. What about you? Is this your posture? Are you desperate to be close to Jesus? Do you hunger? Do you hunger for God's word? You see, it all starts with hearing. Just think back on your conversion. You weren't just walking around one day, enjoying the beautiful Texas landscape filled with blue bonnets, when all of a sudden you just came to your senses and placed your trust in a Savior who you had never heard anything about. You also didn't come to faith by simply watching your Christian Parent or friend or neighbor, live a radically different life than your own. Watching a person live this Christian life is certainly a powerful conversation starter, but the conversation still has to happen. This is why Paul writes in Romans 10 How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of God. So, I recently read an article about uh, actor Andrew Garfield. Uh, I believe he was the second or third Spider Man. Uh, there's been so many, I can't even keep up. But he was also cast in, uh, in Martin Scorsese's new movie uh, Silence as Father Rodriguez. Before filming began, Andrew described himself, and I quote, as a pantheist, agnostic, occasionally atheist, and a little bit Jewish, but mostly just confused. However, while preparing for this role, things began to change. For an entire year, he decided to live the life of a Jesuit priest. He read God's word every day. He received daily instruction from a local priest, and he even went on a 30-day Jesuit retreat to Wales to focus on the Gospels. After the movie was released, he was interviewed by a national magazine, and he said these words, What was really easy was falling in love with this person, was falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most surprising thing. That was the most remarkable thing, falling in love, and how easy it was to fall in love with Jesus. You see, our rhythm always starts with hearing God's word, and when you hear God's word, it will cause you to fall in love with the Savior who loves you. Now, some of you may be saying to yourselves, if I were you, I'd be saying this at least, Jeff, you're kind of preaching to the choir. Maybe... Maybe I am. But I know my own heart, so probably not. So if I'm just preaching to myself, then so be it. But I'm glad you're here this morning. Hearing God's word preached each Sunday is of critical importance to our spiritual growth and formation. But ask yourselves this question What about Monday through Saturday? You see, in Luke 5, it was business as usual. The Sea of Galilee was booming with fishermen and commerce. In other words, it wasn't the Sabbath. Jesus met these people where they were. He came to them, He came to their place of work on a seemingly ordinary day to preach God's Word. They were pressing into Jesus on a Monday when they had a week full of responsibilities hanging over their heads. They were pressing into Jesus on a Wednesday when they were feeling beat down from running errands all week with their kids. They were pressing into Jesus on a Friday when all they wanted to do was go home, kick off them shoes, and veg out for a little while. Maybe watch some sports center. My friends, the one count is not just a Sunday rhythm, but a daily rhythm. We are to be a people who press into Jesus Sunday through Saturday. We are to read God's word. We are to proclaim the gospel to our friends, family, and neighbors. We are to preach the gospel to our own weary hearts every day. We are to be followers Sunday through Saturday. My friends, the one count is not just a Sunday rhythm, but a daily rhythm. Now I want you to imagine for a second being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Um, It was different than White Rock Lake, I'll just say that. One, it was about four times as big, but uh, it was not really a recreational area. It was the center of the economy in this region. So the sea was always packed with fishermen, rain or shine, who were competing with one another for business. So archaeologists have have found 16 ports on the Sea of Galilee that date back to Jesus' day. They estimate that each evening, the prime time for fishing, roughly 200 boats were probably on the sea. They weren't by themselves. This was a competitive business. You see, Peter wasn't just fishing to have some fun. This was his livelihood. He had a family to feed and Employees to pay. The fact that he didn't catch any fish the night before was a really, really big deal. And you can sense Peter's frustration when Jesus asks him to go fishing again. But now it's the worst time of day. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. In other words, come on, come on, Jesus. We're tired. And oh, by the way, we're, we're really good fishermen. We know, we know the fish won't bite during the day. So why waste our time? And what would you know anyway? Aren't you just a carpenter? Have you ever realized how strange this story is? Here's Jesus. He's a, he's a carpenter from landlocked Nazareth telling these seasoned fishermen how to do their jobs. This is, uh, this is different. Just imagine if someone were to come into your place of work and, and not just tell you or recommend what you should do, but command you, like, this is what you're going to do with your job today. Like, in my prior life, I was active duty Air Force for about eight years, and I was an air traffic controller, and one of the things that I did was uh, I gave weekly tours of, of the air traffic control tower to friends, family, uh, local groups like Boy Scouts and stuff, Now, if I were giving a plane, a control instruction, and one of these visitors were to say, "Mm, I don't know about that. If I were you, I think I'd turn him right, not left. If that were me, I would probably laugh and then tell him to sit down and keep quiet. But not Peter. Clearly, Peter already knew that Jesus was not just any ordinary visitor, he already knew that Jesus was much more than a carpenter. Perhaps this was because Peter's current teacher, John the Baptist, had recently told him that this was the Lamb of God, whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. Or perhaps it was because Peter's brother, Andrew, was already convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Or perhaps it was because Jesus... uh, Uh, Peter saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law, miraculously heal his mother-in-law. I'm sure it was partially all of these things, but ultimately it just came down to one thing. Peter heard Jesus' voice. The incarnate word of God spoke, and when the incarnate word of God speaks, you listen. So Peter replies, at your word, I will let down the nets. You see, it is one thing to obey Jesus in the secondary areas of your life, the areas that uh, you know you're not very good, the areas where you know you need God's help. But it's quite another to obey Jesus in the areas that you think you know best, how you do your job, how you raise your kids, how you have fun. When Jesus enters these areas of our life, hmm, we're prone to tell Jesus to sit down and keep quiet. My friends, Jesus was more than a carpenter then, and he is more than a carpenter today. He is the creator of all things, so he speaks authoritatively into every single area of your life. So hear God's word and let this become a key part of your daily rhythm. And I think, I really do think that if, that you will find that if hearing God's word is your one count, you'll find that it is so easy to fall in love with Jesus. So after listening to Jesus, Peter and Andrew let down their nets at the worst time of day and they miraculously catch like an obscene number of fish. It was crazy how many fish they catch. They catch so many fish that they had to call their buddies, John and James, over to help them get all the fish into their boats, plural boats, and then the boats begin to sink. They're so full with fish. I think if if this were me, I would be celebrating. After a night full of catching nothing, with a, a laundry list of responsibilities hanging over my head, I think I'd be... I think I'd be partying it up on that boat. I'd be hooting and hollering. I'd be giving out high fives. I would already be making plans to go buy that new boat, fishing boat that I've been eyeballing all of these months. Who knows, maybe I'd even offer this Jesus guy a job. I like having him around. But that's not how Peter responds. Now, Peter falls on his face. And he cries out, Depart from me, go away. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Is this how you would respond? After you get a raise and land a huge business deal, is your first reaction to repent? You see the prosperity gospel disease, the lowercase G gospel that is spreading so fast through our country, it doesn't preach Peter's response. See, the followers of the prosperity gospel are too busy counting all the fish. But Peter realized that the the infinitely powerful and holy Son of God was standing in his boat. He realized that Jesus was entirely responsible for catching every single one of those fish. Then it dawned on him, and he realized that this was the Messiah, and he deserved to be punished for his sins. And this makes perfect sense given Peter's knowledge of the Old Testament and his expectation of a militaristic Messiah who would come bearing God's sword of judgment. Even in our Old Testament reading from this morning uh, from Jeremiah 16. The same metaphor of fishing for men is used, but in a different way. It wasn't exactly a good thing. In Jeremiah 16, fishing for men is an imagery of divine judgment due to idolatry. But that's not what Peter finds in this boat. He doesn't find the bringer of judgment. He finds the friend of sinners. Now, this is one of the great themes of the Gospel of Luke, and it's it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that we are working through this passage over the next several months, or this book over the next several months. It's this theme of Jesus as a friend of sinners. Jesus eats with sinners, he touches unclean lepers, he hugs the hopeless, he communes with cripples, and he even loves greedy tax collectors. All the people that society deemed unacceptable, people who were excluded from meals, family meals, excluded from worship, people who were banished and untouchable to these people, Jesus befriends. Jesus is certainly a friend of sinners. But don't forget that he also began his public ministry with the words, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus doesn't absolve our need for repentance. In fact, our faith in Jesus actually demands further repentance. You can't have true faith without repentance, just as you can't have true repentance without faith. The two go hand in hand, they are like fishing and following, they cannot be separated. Faith produces repentance. And repentance results in deeper faith. See, when you hear God's Word, you understand God's infinite holiness and turn from your sin, you have to turn to something. And if you turn to anything but Christ, you're merely turning from one sin to another. And this isn't repentance. True repentance means not only turning from sin, but turning from sin to Christ. It is trusting that He will forgive you. It is believing that He will shower you with grace upon grace. It is finding Jesus more beautiful and more desirable than your favorite sin. This is our rhythm as Christians. Repentance and faith. And if these two things do not become your two count, you will continue to live like Norman and Paul, thinking you're a fine fisherman, all the while failing to catch any fish. Even when things were great, Peter repented and turned to Jesus in faith. And with his face on the floor at the feet of Jesus, Peter then hears these comforting words, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Y'all are aware. My family and I will be moving to Colorado Springs in about a month, where I'll be the RUF campus minister at the academy. And uh, one of the unique aspects of the Air Force Academy is that every student um, they receive a commission, a presidential commission, once they graduate. They receive a commission that propels them to become officers in the Air Force. And this word commission, it comes from two Latin words, and it is literally translated to send with. So when a person is commissioned, they are sent with the authority of another. They become delegates of another. They are entrusted with another's authority. So when my future students become Air Force officers, they will command others, and they they will make some weighty decisions, but not with their own authority. In and of themselves, they will have no power. But due to their commission, they will command others with the president's authority. Now, the same is true for us as Christians, but at an infinitely higher scale. Just like Jesus, we hear Jesus say, from now on, you. You. This reminds me of the medieval times when a king would would stand before a loyal subject and the subject would kneel, basically placing his life in the king's hands, who is carrying the sword. And this person, from a posture of humility, might be thinking, is he going to kill me? Or commission me. Then the sword takes out, the king takes out his sword and he says, I knight thee. Now what if this newly commissioned knight stood up after the ceremony and said, your majesty, thanks for knighting me. Wow, I'm so honored. But I think I'm good. I think I'm going to be a baker instead doesn't work that way. He was knighted by the king to be a knight. He was knighted for a particular mission. On his boat, Peter was commissioned by Christ for a particular mission, not just any. And the same is true for every Christian throughout all of history. We have been commissioned by Christ and we are sent with his authority to make disciples of all nations. We have been commissioned to go fishing. So, one of my challenges as a campus minister at the Academy will be to help my students understand the difference between their military commission and their Christian commission. And the two couldn't be further apart. There are vast differences, but this is the key difference one commission is achieved, and the other is received. See, in order to receive a presidential commission, a military member has to prove their worth first. They have to graduate with a bachelor's degree. They have to score so high on a standardized test. They have to be physically fit. They have to get through basic training. Oh, and they have to be disease and injury-free. If you fail to meet these standards, the president basically says, Thanks for trying but I think I'm going to look elsewhere. One of the tragedies of contemporary Christianity is that we also think that we have to earn our commission, that it is something to achieve and not receive. As if before you can be sent into the world to proclaim the gospel to others, you first have to be so smart and know your Bible so well. You have to be so sinless, or at least appear so sinless and you have to be so spiritually fit and this is nonsense in the words of an 18th century hymn writer Joseph Hart all the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him that's it the only thing you bring to the table is your need And then Christ supplies all the rest Jesus met all the qualifications that you and I could never meet. He passed all the tests and he proved his worth. And then he took all of your sin and your diseased heart. Everything that made you unfit to be commissioned and he nailed it to the cross. See, Jesus makes you fit to serve. He gives you his worth. He gives you his commission. Now isn't it interesting that of all the people Jesus could have called to be his first disciples, he chose ordinary, hard-working, middle-class fishermen? Didn't strike, he was a little odd. These guys were not the great of the world. They didn't have riches, rank, or power. They were just ordinary, ordinary guys like me and you. They were full of doubt, yet full of grace. And throughout Scripture, this has always been God's method, has it not? He uses the least likely to accomplish his purposes. He takes the foolish in the world to shame the wise. He takes the weak of the world to shame the strong. We see this with Jacob, the deceiver, who tricked his father and brother and his uncle Laban time and time again. We see this with Gideon, the least likely person from the least likely family, from the least likely tribe of Israel. We also see this in David, the youngest son of Jesse, who boldly confronts and defeats Goliath. We see this with Ruth, the faithful Moabite widow. We see this with Hannah, the barren mother of Samuel. And we see this with Rahab, the harlot who saved God's people. And now we see it in Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Ordinary fishermen commissioned by God to fish for souls. Now I don't know everything that is going on in each of your lives. Some of you may feel like you have nothing to offer. That God's commission is great for others, but it's just not for you. Perhaps this life has beaten you down and tried to strip you of this divine purpose. Perhaps you have tried and tried, and now you're just tired. Perhaps you view yourself as the smallest fish in an infinitely large pond. If this is you, let me encourage you with this. God does not commission small fish. He commissions people who are created in his own image. People who are united to the work and worth of his son. You see, whether you are seven or seventy, the commission, it's the same. You are not some small and insignificant fish. You're a prize fish. Who has been commissioned by God to go catch other prize fish. Your children are prize fish. Your spouse, your parents, your boss, and your employees are all prize fish. Every refugee is a prize fish. The homeless man begging on so many street corners in this city is a prize fish. The hopeless addict is a prize fish. Those who hate you and ridicule your faith. They're fish, too. The young, the old, and everyone between that has been created in the image of God. You aren't small fish. You are God's child. You are God's beloved, and he has commissioned you to go fishing. So embrace your commission every morning and throughout every day. This is our rhythm. So in the book, A River Runs Through It, The four count is often described as the most difficult of all of the counts. See, to perform the four count, you had to muster all of your strength and then propel your rod forward with all your power. You had to give it your all. You couldn't hold anything back. I think the four count of the Christian rhythm is also the hardest count and it's the count that most often throws off our entire rhythm. You may have heard God's word, repented and believed the gospel, and then embraced your commission. But when it comes time to throw your rod forward, you just give a little wrist flick. Our passage this morning ends in such a radical way. It, it really should take your breath away. Just how radical this story ends. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The four count demands everything. Not just some. The text doesn't read, and they left almost everything and followed Jesus. My friends, you can't have one foot on shore and the other foot still in the boat. To follow Jesus, you have to get out of the boat and walk beside him, wherever he takes you. And don't expect Jesus to give you a five- or a ten-year plan beforehand. He won't do it. He didn't give Peter a five-year plan in Luke 5. He didn't give Paul a five-year plan in Acts 9, and he won't give you one either. But he gives something so much better. He says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I got this. Paul writes in Philippians 3 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Brothers and sisters, the, Chris, the Christian life is not easy. Christianity is unlike anything else. Every other religion says, give some, or give much, or maybe even give most. Christianity says, give all. So Henry, Henry Francis Light was born on June 1, 1793 in Ednam, Scotland. His father, Thomas, was a captain in the Royal Navy who spent all of his free time fishing and neglecting his wife and three sons. A few years after Henry was born, this highly esteemed Navy captain abandoned his family, leaving his wife and his boys with nothing. And as a result, Henry's mother and his Little brother became malnourished and died. And Henry, a nine-year-old orphan, was left with no means of support. Until the headmaster of Henry's school, Dr. Robert Burroughs, began to welcome Henry into his own home. Everyone else saw an orphan. Dr. Burroughs saw a prized fish. And their relationship grew Until Henry was adopted and became a dearly loved member of this family. And it was through this family that he learned to love a Heavenly Father who will never abandon him. He learned to hear God's word, repent and believe, to embrace His commission. And so after graduating from Trinity College in Dublin, Henry was ordained an Anglican priest, and then he fell in love and married a woman named Anne Maxwell. The happy couple then moved to a town called Sway, not knowing the pain they would soon endure. In 1820, their one-month-old daughter got sick and died, leaving the two utterly heartbroken And then in 1822, Henry was diagnosed with a lung disorder that he would battle with the rest of his life and leave him in his bed most days throughout the year. Nevertheless, in 1824, just a couple years later, he accepted a call to pastor a church in Brixham, this little town a few hours away. So leaving their friends and family behind, Henry and Anne moved to this remote village where they found a congregation of ordinary, hard-working, rough and tough fishermen. Men who were selfish and proud. Men who neglected their families. Men who were just like his father. The man who had abandoned him and left his mother and brother to die. But things had changed. Henry's father's rejection of him as a nine-year-old boy had lost its grip on his heart. He no longer had to flail his arms around to get his father's attention. He no longer had to prove his worth to see his dad's smile. He no longer had to merit fame to earn his father's favor. Why? Because the gospel of grace had captured his heart. You see, Henry now lived his life according to a new rhythm. A rhythm of hearing God's word every day. A rhythm of repentance and faith. A rhythm of embracing his commission to fish for souls. A rhythm of leaving everything and following Jesus. Over time, this rhythm became one beautiful motion, centered on a Savior who had given up everything for him. And Henry now had a heavenly Father who would never hide his smile, who would never remove his favor, and who would never withhold his love. Because of this reality, because of God's grace, Henry Francis Light became a master fisherman. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word preached this morning. Thank you, thank you that you are a good God who loves us dearly. We pray, Lord, that uh, this rhythm will become our own, that we will not fish however we decide but how you know is best, that we will take joy in the Great Commission, that you will continue to build in us a boldness that we don't have in ourselves. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the work that he accomplished on the cross, and it is in him that we trust, and, in his, in the, and it is in him, his name that we preach. We pray, amen.